Good morning, good morning, good morning. 1045 at Discover Church. How are we feeling this morning? Man, y'all are the, uh, the faithful few. Apparently the Chiefs are playing at noon today. And apparently I've developed a reputation of not getting out before noon. So glad that y'all are here. Uh, can I just confess to you that it would be my preference to have a Thanksgiving meal of only sides and I could completely do without the turkey, just completely. Anybody else? Yeah, I've tried to recommend we transition to the traditional Thanksgiving ribeye, but you know, apparently that's more expensive and so I'm not buying. Braveheart, Gladiator, The Patriot. If you were to ask almost any man to list their top five movies of all time, there is a really good chance that one of these three movies would make the list. Amen, men. There we go. And the reason why is because these are epic stories of incredible heroes that overcome insurmountable odds and despite the circumstances, they find a way to overcome. And I thought it might be appropriate today as we wrap up this series and as we're in Veterans Day weekend, which by the way, let me say thank you to all of our veterans for serving. We appreciate you, love you, making it possible for us to be able to do what we do uh, in the loud way that we do it. Um, so thank you, veterans. But I know that there are some of us that have fought for our country, fought for our family, or a just cause, but the reality of it is, is that there's a whole lot of us that have never been in a situation to do that. And there's a lot of us that when we see, you know, these incredible movies, we, we, we you know, sometimes think of ourselves, perhaps place ourselves in the hero role. But the truth is, is that most of us will not be like these characters, most of us will not be like William Wallace, gallantly readying his people to fight against the imperialist, imperialist King Edward I. Most of us will not be like Maximus Decimus Meridus, who's fighting for the honor of his wife and his son who've been murdered. Most of us will not be like Benjamin Martin, who despite his best efforts to avoid this, this bubbling conflict between the American colonies and the, the British, um, but then finding himself right in the middle of it, leading the Carolina militiamen to defeat the Redcoats. We're not, we're not gonna find ourselves in that situation more than likely. But these movies, they... they they, they, they tap and they resonate with a warrior spirit that's naturally embedded deep down inside of us. And men, if you are willing to be honest with yourself, then maybe you are like me. Maybe when you watch these movies, maybe it causes you to ask the question, am I that kind of man? Most of us would love to be that kind of man, the kind of man who, who, who saves the day, who leads the charge, that becomes famous for, for, for exceptional and exemplary um, uh, 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 combat in the face of danger. Most of us want to be that kind of man, but because of the world that we live in, very few of us will ever be in a situation where we get the opportunity to test and see if we're that kind of man. And the truth is what unites all of these super macho man, superhero, save the day, kill everybody else and blow everything up and not worry about how much it costs to fix any of it Refix it. That's what happens when you try to say fix and repair at the same time. <laughs> the thing that unites it is this, is this thing with these heroes that despite all of their flaws and despite all of their issues, there's one thing that unites them all together. They are all hard to kill. They take shots, they take wounds, they overcome losses, they overcome the odds, and they defeat the enemy. 
What's amazing about these stories is that in the midst of all of it, they're kind of like the, the old Timex slogan. They take a licking and keep on ticking. And at some level, we want to be that kind of man. And so as we enter into the sixth and final week of our Man Up series, I want to bring a message to you today called Hard to Kill. Now, if you're new with us, you're catching us at the very end of a six-part teaching series called Man Up. And here's the aim. This is what we've been trying to do, that at the, at the core of our belief, we believe that God has designed every boy to be a man, but because of a whole lot of factors at play, very few boys ever become the man that God intended for them to be. And so what we've been doing is we've been unpacking and diving into God's word to learn how can we man up? How can we take steps to be the man that God always hoped and always longed and always desired for us to become? And ladies, as has been the case in every week, don't tune out because there's gonna be some stuff in here for you as well. This will probably be the most practical message that I brought in this series because here's the deal. Um, we can watch all these superhero movies and we can all appreciate the fact that these lead characters are all hard to kill. But here's the truth of it. Um, as it turns out, Mel Gibson and Russell Crowe are actually not that hard to kill, which is the reason why they pay stunt doubles. And stunt doubles don't make nearly as much as the lead man, and so they have them do all the dangerous stuff. And in our life, we don't get the opportunity to call in a stunt double. It's us. And as we think about these, these bulletproof characters and we think about the thing it causes us to be curious about within ourselves, I wanna make us aware of a truth that God is very aware of and God wants you to be very aware of about our enemy, the devil. Now listen, I believe that one of the best things the devil ever did was convince people that he doesn't exist. I mean, you don't have to be sneaky or sly if nobody knows that you're there. But I believe the devil is very much real. There is very much a spiritual war. There's a battle against good and evil that is going on all around us all the time. And this is what the Bible tells us about the devil. First Peter chapter five, verse eight, he says this, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is the same devil that Jesus taught us that his aim, his goal, his, his mission strategy, mission success for the devil is to steal, kill, and destroy. And so what does the devil do? The devil is constantly on the attack. He's constantly roaming about and walking about looking to attack you, to attack your family, and to attack this church. Now here's what I believe. As the men go, so go the families and the homes. And as the men go, so goes the church. Now, if you're new with this and you go, well, that doesn't sound very, you know, gender appropriate. We address this all the way back in week one. Go back and watch it. There's a role for men and women to play. But I believe that God makes it abundantly clear when it comes to spiritual leadership, men, God expects us to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. And God expects us to be the spiritual leaders in the church. Doesn't mean that women can't be spiritual leaders, but the expectation and the responsibility falls primarily on us. And so what I wanna do today is I wanna, I wanna help us understand why it's critical that we must man up, why we must learn how to be hard to kill. In order to help us understand that, um, we're gonna look at a story of a man in the book of Judges. You can go ahead and turn there if you like, Judges chapter 16. Um, and we're gonna look at a man in the book of Judges who despite being a man that was impressively hard to kill, died a very easy death. And then after I share that, we're gonna springboard into four things that I believe that God would want us to be mindful of so that we can be hard to kill. Now, let me provide a little bit of context about what's going on in the book of Judges and what's going on with this particular character. 
God, all the way from the beginning, established that he would be the king over the nation of Israel. So Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, different names, same group of people. And God's desire was that he would be the king over the nation of Israel, that they would worship him, they would serve him. And as long as they served him in obedience, then God made promises to bless them. But when they walked in disobedience, God made certain promises that consequences were coming. And as was the case um, over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the Jews continually said, yeah, about that, we can do it our way. Thanks, but no thanks. They continued to rebel against God. They continued to walk in disobedience against God. And so true to his word, God would allow other uh, rival nations, evil nations, nations that worshiped other gods and refused to worship the one true living God. And God would allow those nations to come in and to bring calamity upon the nation of Israel. In this particular case, that nation are the Philistines. And so the Philistines have come and they've risen up and they've become prominent and powerful and now they are uh, overwhelming and, and have been attacking Israel and Israel has, is basically in the verge of collapse. And what God does is he raises up people and that's what the book of Judges is all about. These judges are people that God would raise up that would be incredibly capable and powerful in battle. And so God raises up these judges to deliver them. And the reason why is because all the way back in the book of Genesis, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. He said, Abraham, listen, if you will follow me, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And so because God made this promise to Abraham and Abraham is the father of the Jews, God always raised up a judge to deliver Israel from total calamity and total annihilation. In Judges chapter 13, we see that God comes into a, a man and a wife who have had a hard time having a child. And God shows up and says, listen, through you, you are gonna conceive and have a child and I'm gonna raise that child up and he is going to be my deliverer for Israel to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so God makes a promise to this husband and this wife and he, he asks them and requires them to take a Nazarite vow. Now you can learn about the Nazarite vow in Judges chapter six, or I'm sorry, not Judges chapter six, I'm gonna give you the right number. Numbers chapter six, if you wanna learn more about that. But essentially a Nazarite vow was a vow when somebody made a promise to do three things. Number one, they would never drink alcohol. Number two, they would never cut their hair. And number three, they would never touch anything that was dead. What's unique about this particular Nazarite vow is that God requires the Nazarite vow of a child who's not yet even born. And so he requires the mother and the father to make this vow. And so they do. And then we see that a man named Samson is born. Samson grows up and Samson becomes a man's man. I'm talking about he's the guy that every guy wishes he could be. He's the dude that every girl wishes she could be with. He was a man's man. At one point, the Bible tells us that Samson was walking along a path and a lion came up and attacked him. And Samson just killed that lion with his own bare hands. Now, I don't know about you, but any man that can kill a lion with his bare hands is not a man I want to see in an alley on a dark night. I want to steer clear of that man. Apparently, the Philistines did not know about this situation with the lions because fast forward a little bit in Samson's story, we see that Samson comes face to face with a whole band of the Philistines' best men of war. And Samson goes to, goes to fight those men. Now, you might think that a warrior might be fairly effective in being able to beat somebody or maybe even beat a couple of people, but a thousand to one odds, you're gonna place your money on the thousand every day. But here's what Samson did. Samson looked around and he says, all I need for me is the jawbone of a donkey. 
because that's a man's man's weapon of choice. Lesser men will choose a gun, a knife, a bazooka. A real man will find the jawbone of a donkey and start killing folk. And that's what Samson does. He kills a thousand dudes in a single afternoon of a fight. Samson was a man's man. But despite all of Samson's incredible things, what we learn is that there's this phrase that comes up over and over and over again in these three chapters of Samson's life. And the phrase is, is that, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. Here's what we learn. Samson himself was not very impressive. What made Samson impressive was the spirit of the Lord that came upon Samson. And I've got good news for every man in this place who wonders whether or not they have what it takes. I've got good news for every man that wonders whether or not they measure up, that wonders whether or not they can be that kind of man that is impressive, that makes a difference, that wins the fight and wins the girl. Because here's the deal, the same spirit of the Lord that came upon Samson is available to every man today should they choose to surrender and follow Jesus, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you. And you too can be a man who can kill a thousand dudes with the jawbone of a donkey. Actually, I don't know that that's how it's going to work. And if you do, they'll probably put you in jail. So don't do that. But it's good news for us that, that what made Samson impressive wasn't his genes or his genetics. It was his connection to the giver of genes and genetics, his connection to God. But here's the problem with Samson. As is the case with most men, anytime that we're good at something, we have a tendency to let it go to our head. And Samson lived his life with two fatal flaws. He lived his life and he led his life with arrogance. Arrogance basically just means I know better. I can do it better. I don't need anybody else's help. I, 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 don't, I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I certainly don't need God to try to infringe upon my life. I, I can just do what I want, how I want, and it always seems to work out. Samson also lived and led his life in ignorance. And because he lived his life in ignorance, Samson was unaware of what he didn't know. Can I tell you, men, these are the default go-tos for us. One way or the other, we often default to either live our lives and lead our lives in arrogance or to lead or live our lives in ignorance. And here's what I need you to understand, that anyone who continually chooses to live or lead their life without seeking God's wisdom and direction is living in, in arrogance. And anyone who lives their lives and continually refuses to surround themselves with godly friends and godly influence is living their lives in ignorance. Now listen, an, a, a godly man an impressive man can be hard to kill. But when you live your lives in ignorance and arrogance, you begin to live your life as a fool and fools are easy prey. We never, we ne this foolishness is never more clear than Samson's fling with Delilah. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. If not, I'd love to give you a little bit of backdrop. Delilah is a Philistine woman. This is the third Philistine woman that Samson has gotten close with. He's already living in arrogance because God has repeatedly told his people, do not marry people of other nations um, and other places. Not because God's xenophobic, not because God is racist, it's because God knows that those other nations worship and serve false gods. 
And God knows that if his chosen people, whom he has chosen to, to protect and to lead and to guide, if they intermarry with other nations then they will take on other gods and they will begin to worship those other gods and they will be lured away to spiritual adultery to worshiping other gods instead of worshiping the one true God. And Samson says, I don't really care about that. Have you seen how good she looks? Delilah on her part is a pawn for the Philistines. The Philistines are frustrated because they can't find a way to beat Samson. They've already thrown a thousand of their best men and none of them came home. So the Philistines come up to Delilah and say, hey, what's going on, Delilah? Um, Hey there, Delilah. No, wait, I'm not gonna sing. They make an agreement. Hey, Delilah, we'll give you a whole bunch of money. Matter of fact, it adds up. They basically make an agreement. We'll give you the equivalent of 100 pounds of silver if you will help us learn what the secret to Samson's strength is. And Delilah goes, got you. So Samson and Delilah come close. I want you to watch what happens as we go through this in Judges chapter 6, 16, verse 6. If you're with me, let me hear you say hard to kill. You said that with such enthusiasm. I can tell this is really resonating. Verse six says this. So Delilah said to Samson, I imagine, I like to imagine things. I like to imagine Delilah's like batting her eyelashes, you know, coming in. She's all adjusted and everything. Everything's looking right. And she comes into Samson and she says, oh, please tell me where you get, where your strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Two thoughts. I wish I would have thought of the second thought in the first message, but I just thought of it right now, so you're gonna get extra content. Number one, ladies, you have stupid power. I, it's possible that Delilah was a really good cook. Maybe her house was the cleanest house in all the land. But I would bet my house that Delilah did not come up talking about her cooking or her house. So much power. Samson? What may you be bound with to afflict you? (laughs) Now, at some point, men, let's make this, let's contextualize this. Your wife, your boo thing, your girlfriend, your fiance comes up and you say, hey, baby. (laughs) Baby, I need to know. What's the worst thing I can do to cause such irreparable damage to your soul? Would you tell me? Y'all, I'm having way more fun in this service. Once you watch what happens. Verse seven, Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. I love the emphasis on other. Might as well have said, I'll be like any lesser man. 
Bowstrings, by the way, are just uh, animal intestines. So just come and bring some wet animal intestines. Wrap me up, baby. You can pour some sugar on me if you want to. I almost sang it, but I was like, no. So what do you think Delilah does? Delilah's waiting for a payday. She doesn't care about Samson. Delilah says, she, uh, let's see, verse eight. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings not yet dried and she bound them with him. And now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And then she said to him, oh my gosh, Samson, the Philistines are here, save me. It's so surprising. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Man, he just breaks the bowstrings and then kills everybody and goes back to bed. Notice what happens. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. Now at this point, I'm imagining Samson's having fun. I mean, his job is to defeat the Philistines. And so I show up, she wraps me up, I get up, I break things, I kill people, I go back to bed before breakfast. So what happens? Verse 11. If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I shall become weak and be like any other man. And you can guess what happens. She binds him up. The Philistines are here. Such a shock a second time. Oh my gosh. And he breaks the binds and he kills everybody. Now you think at some point Samson would begin to catch on, but can I tell you, men? There's something that happens the longer you live in arrogance and ignorance, you become more of a fool. I want you to notice how not subtle Delilah is the third time. Verse 13, Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and you've told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom, Same story, third verse, lather, rinse, repeat. It all happens again. Now she begins to lay it on thick. She begins to say, oh, but Samson, if you really love me, tell me where your strength comes from. Verse 16, and it came to pass when she pestered him daily, with her words and pressed him that his soul was vexed to death. I love the way this is worded. Let me offer a quick teaching to the wives. Y'all have stupid power over your husbands. Be careful with it though. Because if you pester and you pester and you pester, then your man will be vexed to death. You will literally make him weak and not weak in the knees in the way that you want him to be. Notice what happens. Finally, he tells her the secret is found in his Nazarite vow, namely the fact that his hair's never been cut. So she lulls Samson to sleep. She cuts her hair. Here comes the Philistines. Verse 20, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And what is probably the two most Depressing verses in the Bible. At least the most depressing sentences. So he awoke from his sleep, 
And he said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Man, can I tell you that the longer that you live as a fool, the more likely the things are that you've come to rely upon will be lost. The things that you care the most about will be gone. And the worst part is, is you'll wake up one day and it'll be gone and you won't know what happened. Let me ask you men, what are the things that you care about the most? Is it your marriage? Your kids? Your career, your resources? If you commit yourself to living and leading your life with arrogance and ignorance as Samson did, then you will live as a fool. You will become an easy target and those things will eventually be taken from you. But here's what you have to understand. I misspoke. The reality of it is that those things are taken from you. You see, the devil is, is, is like a lion. He, he walks about. He constantly is circling your life. He's constantly looking for the weak points because here's what the enemy knows. The enemy knows is that by your faith in Jesus, that every step of obedience you take fortifies the things that God has provided to you in your life. And the devil knows he is no match against the power of almighty God. So here's what he does. He's no fool. He's patient. And he will walk about carefully. He will look for weaknesses he will look for areas in your life where you are living like a fool. Areas where you are living in arrogance or ignorance. Because what happens when you live in arrogance and ignorance, at that point, the enemy doesn't even have to take it away. What happens is, is you will do what Samson did and you give it away. Samson's strength was not taken from him. He gave it away by his disobedience. So when he got up to fight the Philistines, as every other time, he was unaware that the spirit of the Lord was not upon him anymore. Men, I'm telling you, the enemy is not gonna come at a place where you are high on the mountain and everything is good with you and God and you and Jesus and your marriage is great and your kids are great, your finances are great, your career's great. No, no, no. What the enemy will do is he will wait for what happens on the other side of that when you begin to believe it's great because you got it there. And you begin to arrogantly believe it's because of your ability, not God's. And you begin to ignorantly live out things that are disobedient from God's word. And what happens when you do that is you let down the gates and you let the enemy in and he doesn't take it from you. He simply grabs what you have open-handedly made available to him. Samson's story ends pretty tragically. He ends up being arrested after this. His eyes are gouged out and he becomes a slave to the Philistines in their temple and basically serves as a sideshow freak performing acts and feats of strength where he can't do enough to free himself or deliver anybody else. But he can still do some things that most other people can't do. You see, the reality of it is that Samson's life ends like so many men's life ends a life with a couple of incredible accomplishments. 
but unfulfilled potential. And I'm here to tell you today that God does not want that for your life. I believe that what God wants for you, the lesson that we learned from Samson's life today is that in order for us to be hard to kill, we must always be fit. Because here's what fit people do. Fit people don't have to get ready, they're already ready. Fit people don't have to, oh, hold on a second. Hold on a second, let me get ready to run that race. No, no, no. A fit person has been preparing themselves for that race. They've been preparing themselves for that challenge. And so what I wanna do today is I wanna share four key areas that I believe that in order for us to make the transition from being a boy and man up to be a man, the man that God always intended for us to be, I believe that there's four, there's probably more, but there's four things that I believe that we must be fit in if we are going to be the man God calls us to be, if we're going to be hard to kill. And the first area is this, we need to be spiritually fit. We talked a lot about that in this message series where we've unpacked what it looks like to follow Jesus and try to provide resources and encourage you um, to join a group or to get connected to Starting Point so you can have a mentor that can help you understand how to get spiritually fit. But here's the deal. For Samson, this was ultimately his issue. Samson was not spiritually fit. If Samson were spiritually fit, everything else would have fallen into place. But Samson wasn't interested in being spiritually fit. He wasn't interested in what God had to say or doing things the way that God wanted. Because he wasn't spiritually fit, Samson began to establish some tendencies and some patterns in his life, in his early years, that he never allowed to be brought under control of the Spirit of God. And because those things are never brought under the control of the Spirit of God, the fire of his own lust and the unwillingness to put to death his uncontrolled passions all led to sin. And even though he was able to break the shackles of men, he was unable to break the shackles of sin. And the more he lived as a fool, the more he lived spiritually unfit, the tighter the shackles of sin grew on him until they eventually squeezed him out. We must be spiritually fit. Here's the second thing. We must work to be physically fit. Fellows, this is just basic. If you do not learn to take care of the body that God has given you, then you will tap out sooner than you are supposed to. Our bodies are a gift from God. He calls us to, to steward our bodies. The Bible says that our bodies are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God calls us to take care of our bodies. And here's the deal. There are far too many men that have tapped out in their life because they were unwilling to be physically fit, to be disciplined in the way that they eat and to be disciplined to have healthy and regular exercise in their life. Now listen, can I just tell you something? Let me tell you the reason why, why, why I spend so much time working out. I spend as much time as I do working out because I've learned the workout part. I'm still working on the eat part. So I walk as an oxymoron. Some might say, remove the oxy. Really, that took that long? <laughs> Let me get more direct, men. Husbands, your wife deserves the best version of you. Your wife deserves to be able to have you for the long haul. 
And when you made a commitment and a covenant through thick and thin, through sickness and in health, yes, it includes sickness that is brought on because you are making bad physical decisions and she is, will, will remain with you. And I'm not trying to minimize the things that we can't control and illnesses and diseases that we don't have control of. But can I tell you, there are far too many men that have tapped out far too soon because they didn't work on being physically fit. Let me take it a step further. Men, if you don't recognize the thinner version of you from your wedding pictures, when you look at yourself in the mirror, it's time to start getting more physically fit. Not just because it's a stewardship issue of the body that God gave you, but it's a covenant marriage issue because your wife deserves you for as long as possible. I will often joke, I don't really do CrossFit, I do CrossFat, but I primarily do it not because I love it. Can I tell you, I hate working out. There's never been a day where I woke up and go, oh my goodness, I can't wait to go do that. Yes, I want to run, please. Like, if you see me running, you need to start running. <laughs> I was doing a workout at my house this week. We were supposed to do these sprints. Listen, I am as swift as an elephant, y'all. <laughs> I'm doing it because I want to keep my woman interested. Fellas, just because you got the girl doesn't mean you get to put your feet up. You need to keep chasing the girl. If you are a dad or a grandfather, you need to work on being physically fit because if you tap out early, who is the person in their life that God had placed in their life to be an example of what a godly man looks like? If because you weren't physically fit, you tapped out early. Our kids and our grandkids deserve us to be physically fit. Here's the third thing. We need to be financially fit. Listen, can I just tell you, if you are not financially fit, you will make a bunch of financial mistakes and you'll make some stupid financial decisions out of desperation. And here's what I've learned. When I make desperate financial decisions, I end up paying a stupid tax that costs way more than I wanted to pay. We need to be financially fit. What does that mean? I'm not gonna unpack all this, but I wanna share a couple of thoughts with you that God shares a basic one-two when it comes to financial fitness that we need to, according to godly principles, we need to maximize our income. What does that mean? It means that we need to do the best that we can to maximize the amount of money that we can make for our family according, here's the caveat, to godly principles. That doesn't mean you need to be a workaholic. It doesn't mean you need to be a slave to work. It doesn't mean you need to refuse or reject or rebuke your, your wife or your kids for the sake of your career. But what it means is, is you need to not be lazy. You need to work hard. When you have opportunities to learn new skills or put tools in your toolbox so that when the door of opportunity that God wanted to open up for you opens up, you have the skills ready to walk into it so that you can maximize your income. But we don't need to just maximize our income. We need to organize or prioritize our outgo. I have preached numerous messages on this. And if you need me to send you one, let me know, I can send it to you. But God lays out an organization or priority of how we ought to handle our money if we want to experience financial freedom. And God organizes it this way. He says, you need to give first, you need to save second, and then you need to live on the rest. 
Far too many of us want to reorganize that pyramid, reorganize that priority level. And we go, well, we got to live on this and got to pay the bills and then on. If I have any left, I'll save. And if I've got any left, then I'll give. Listen, maybe you're here today and you're not even sure where you are with Jesus. Maybe you're not sure where you are with the church. Maybe you don't trust the church when it comes to money. Then listen, just, just try this. Don't give to the church. Go find a, a nonprofit organization and start there. Okay, I, I don't, God doesn't need your money. Go find a nonprofit organization that you can get excited about and you start practicing giving first and see what happens. Because when you do, I promise you, you will have more joy in your life. Because when you give out of what God has given you because it's his in the first place and you give it away somebody else to something that is, that is doing something awesome or positive in the world, it begins to build joy. And when you save second, then what that does is that begins to usher in peace in your life. Because now you're not stressed out when the, when the vehicle needs new tires, you gotta replace the furnace because you've got savings that's built up. So you're not stressed out when, when life happens. And then when you are able to give first, save second, and you live on the rest, and what that does is it brings this remarkable freedom where you're not freaked out about stuff. Listen, I get it. Some of us are in a situation where we're trying to navigate an income situation or, or a debt situation. Listen, can I just tell you, if you will stick to this, it works. I've experienced it in my life. I've experienced it in many others. Let me also say this before I pivot away from this. And, and, and this isn't a thus says God. This is kind of a thus says me. So, you know, you can put this in your pipe and smoke it. If you are a husband or if you are responsible for the upbringing and raising of a child, there's two things you need to do. You need to get a will and you need to get life insurance. Can I tell you, it breaks my heart when I'm counseling a wife who has just unexpectedly lost her husband. And in the midst of all the grief, her grief or her children's grief or their family's grief, she's also trying to figure out what am I supposed to do with all of this? And without a will, things get messy. And now we've got to deal with probate court and we got to deal with all that stuff. And I don't know who's who's and, and everybody's coming in and trying to get a piece of it. And then, the, and then it's up to the courts to figure that out. And without life insurance, we, you know, assuming that your income makes a significant dent in what's going on in the household, then without your income and no life insurance, now in the midst of dealing with all the chaos of all of that, now comes all the extra pressure of how am I going to pay the bills? And are we going to have to radically reorient and uproot our lives even more than what's already been be radically reoriented because my husband or my dad isn't here anymore. We need to have our financial house in order. Thus says me, not thus says the Lord. Last thing is this. We need to be relationally fit. Relationships are the anchor for all of the good things in our lives. All of the greatest joys and the deepest wounds happen as a result of relationships. So we need to learn to be relationally fit. We need to learn how to navigate relationships because if we do not, then the enemy will turn relationships into weapons that will wound you. What does Jesus say about relationships? Matthew 22, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So whatever it is that you would love for your neighbor to do, your spouse to do, your children to do, your parents to do, your friends to do, Whatever you would have them do to you, that's what you need to do to others. And you ought not wait until they do it to you first before you reciprocate. The command is, is that you initiate this first, regardless of whether they reciprocate. Let me offer a couple thoughts on this. 
Never pursue a person more than you pursue God. Never pursue a person more than you pursue God. I don't care if it's your spouse or your kids or your mom. Never pursue a relationship more than you pursue God. Why? Because when you pursue a relationship more than you pursue God, then you heap upon that person expectations of things that they will never be able to measure up in. And when they fail you and they get knocked off the pedestal that you have elevated them up to, a couple things will happen. You will feel irreparably wounded. And you'll begin to wonder, how could you? How dare you? I can't believe you. And it will send your world into chaos because you pursued them more than you pursued God. It is inevitable that they are going to fail you. But God is reliable and he never will. And when you pursue a person more than you pursue God, then you constantly set them up and you set the relational relational dynamic that you have with them, you set them up to fail because we are all broken, busted, jacked up, messed up people. And it's only a matter of time until my busted, broken, jacked up, messed up cracks begin to hurt you. Here's the second thing. You need to establish some boundaries with people. Some of y'all need to establish some emotional boundaries with people. There are some people that wear you out emotionally and you need to put some boundaries up. Can I tell you, it's not sinful when they ask if you wanna hang out, if you say no. Also, you need to understand that no is not only an acceptable answer, it's a complete sentence. And so when, they gets really, when it gets really awkward and you said, hey, you wanna come hang out? And you go, no, thank you. No, thank you. You don't need to provide any other justification. Now in your mind, you might be thinking, because you freak me out and stress me out, bro. I can't even with you right now. That might be sin to say that. So just leave it at no. Some of us need to put some relational boundaries or some romantic boundaries up. Can I just speak to something to try to normalize something about the human condition? Can we all agree that we're jacked up? Can we all agree that we're sinful? Can we all agree that though it may be different for all of us, there are certain things that that we like or want or desire that God says is not good for us? Can we agree on that? Then let me help you with this. You need to recognize that because you are a sinful person, There are going to be times and seasons in your life where you are going to be drawn to somebody that you're not married to and you're gonna like it. Can I tell you, the first recognition of that attraction, that is not sin. Here's where it becomes sin. When you don't do anything about it. What happens is, is because we like that, and especially in seasons when things aren't great at home, we try to make more room and more space for, for that. A little bit, let me hold that hug just a little bit longer. Let me get, let me get a little bit more time, a little bit more face time. Let me, let, me, let me say another joke. Let me, let me linger a little bit longer. Can I tell you? It's in those moments that we need to start putting some relational boundaries up because it's in those moments where you just put the gate down and the devil is coming in to take what you are giving him. I don't know what that looks like for you. Let me tell you what it looks like for me. I don't ever go out to eat or, or get a coffee or anything that might be perceived as a date 
with another woman that's not my wife. I never meet with somebody behind closed doors with another woman that's not my wife. Is it because I'm concerned that because we went to Starbucks together that's just on the table, right there in front of God and everybody? No, I'm not worried about that happening. But here's what I know. I know the devil hates me, he hates my wife, he hates my life, he hates my marriage, and he will do anything he can to still kill and destroy. So regardless of whether you've got bad intentions or I got bad intentions or you got some needs that ain't being met or I got some needs that ain't being met, I'm locking that gate shut. Devil, you're not getting any access here. I don't know what you need to do with that, but I'm not gonna give any space for any of that to happen. Here's the last thing. We need to invest in the relationships that are closest to us. The problem for a lot of us when it comes to relational fitness is we misappropriate our relational resources and we invest them in the wrong places. So let me establish based on some of God's teaching, the most important relationships. How many of you are married? Say amen. Let me tell you something. I want you to look at your spouse. I want you to say this. You are not This is class participation. Look at your spouse and say this. You are not my most important relationship. Now I want you to look at your spouse and say, thank you, praise God. Can I tell you, your spouse is not your most important relationship. Your kids are not your most important relationship. Go back to point number one under relational fitness. God is your most important relationship. After God, if you're married, your spouse is your next most important relationship. Now listen, I get it. We love our kids. But your kids are not the second most important relationship in your life. They're not. Your spouse is. And far too many marriages begin to fracture and begin to get distorted because we allow our children, those sweet little devil angels that they are, here's what the enemy does. Listen, if you don't think the enemy will use your children to kill your life, he does not understand rules of engagement. He will use your children to create a wedge in your marriage in order to cause damage to them. The best gift for your children is not something that can be bought with money. The best gift you can give your children is a godly mom and a godly dad who love each other more than they love anything else except Jesus. If you're single, or I'm a single people, amen? I got you. If you're single, listen, you're not married. Your most important relationship is Jesus. Listen, if you want to find somebody who's going to be a good fit for you, find somebody who loves Jesus more than they love you. Find somebody that's, that's serving Jesus more than they're pursuing you. And then we get to ask the question, you know, they ain't half ugly. I wouldn't mind doing a little more of Jesus serving with them by my side. And then after that comes your kids. After that comes your relationships. Let me also say, if you're a blended family, I know we've got lots of blended families. Let me, let me, let me share this. 
I recognize that as you're blending a family, there's a lot of complications and there's like, here's mine and here's yours and there's my stuff and your stuff, my kids and your kids. And maybe we have some stuff together. Maybe we have a kid together, but can I tell you something? Listen to me very carefully. When you become together as a blended family, your kids or their kids is no longer your most important relationship. Your spouse is. So even though it's been you and your kids for however long before they came into the picture, according to God's teaching, your spouse is now the most important relationship next to Jesus. And your kids or their kids or our kids now come after us. We gotta prioritize and appropriate our relational resources. Listen, part of Samson's issue is that he pursued women more than he pursued God. That was arrogant. Part of Samson's issue is he did not pursue any other relationships other than women. Therefore, he didn't have any friends around him to pull him off the train tracks when the train started coming. That was ignorance. And because Samson led with arrogance and ignorance, he began to live as a fool. Men, as, our, as we go, so go our families. As we go, so go our church. And it's because of this that God wants you to not only to survive, but to thrive. He wants you to be hard to kill because the devil is constantly walking about, patiently waiting for you to open the gates because when you give him an inch, he'll take a mile and he will still kill and destroy the things that matter to you. So don't be a fool. Instead, get spiritually, physically, financially, and relationally fit. Why? So that you can take the steps to man up to be the man of God that God has always wanted you to be. Now, maybe you're here and you think, you know what, man, I really resonate with Samson. I mean, when I think of Samson and you talked about, you know, doing things he shouldn't have been doing, going to places he shouldn't have been going, being with people he shouldn't have been with, like, man, do I ever resonate with that guy? It's true. Samson's life ended tragically and it ended in a way that that left so much unrealized potential that God had created in him and created for him. But here's something that I find interesting. When we get past the book of Judges, the next time, according to my studies, that we see Samson's name again is in a very interesting place. We get past Psalms and Proverbs, we get past the prophets, we get past into the New Testament with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get past the book of Acts and the life of Paul. And then tucked away almost at the end of the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11, we find Samson's name. Samson, the man who walked in arrogant defiance against God. Samson, the man who walked in ignorance, thinking that he could do it and didn't have anybody to help him know what he didn't know. Samson, the guy who constantly did the wrong thing despite all of his gifts. And at times did, did the right thing in the right way, but oftentimes did the wrong thing in the wrong way. Samson, the guy who was ultimately arrested, his eyes were gouged out because he refused to be the man that God wanted him to be. In Hebrews chapter 11, we find Samson's name listed amongst the heroes of the faith for us to look to for encouragement and inspiration. Why? Here's why I believe. 
Because at the end of Samson's life, as we read in Judges 16, arrested, blind, playing the fool for God's enemies, Samson comes to a place of recognition of his wrong. He cries out to God for forgiveness and says, God, would you use me and strengthen me one last time? Samson asked for somebody's help to place his hands on this pillar of the temple and on that pillar of the temple. And he cries out to God, God, would you use me one last time? What theologians assume here is that in this prayer is a cry of repentance and forgiveness from Samson and says the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson once more and he pushes down the pillars and 3,000 of God's enemies are killed in the collapse. And it says that there are more people who suffered justice in Samson's death than they did in Samson's life. Now, I don't have time to unpack why all of this is just and all of that good stuff. I don't have time to do that. But here's what I want you to understand. At the moment Samson came to a place of seeking God for repentance and forgiveness, God forgave Samson. And if God forgave Samson, God can forgive you. John chapter three and verse 16, you know this verse. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son, that according to the King James, all the way the King James says it, that whosoever, open invitation, anybody, would call upon the name of Jesus, will be saved, will be forgiven. Here's what God wants you to know today. Your past is your story. But in Jesus, your past can be your past. And in Jesus, you can have a new life with new hope and new possibilities. And it starts with your believing in Jesus and asking him to forgive you for your sins. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.